Hello there, and welcome to the Bomb Squad Podcast. I'm your host, Tim M. Sullivan, and with me today I have... Austin Zwiebelman. And Ethan Hawker. And today we are talking about a very special film that is near and dear to my heart. We are talking about the 1995 Mamoru Oshii film Ghost in the Shell, which is kind of topical right now just because it recently got an IMAX remaster and is being re-released in both Japan and the U.S. I don't know if that's still playing, but if it is, um, go check it out. So we're going to talk about that. And uh, before I get into the questions, I just kind of want to introduce the Ghost in the Shell franchise and also kind of talk a bit about the director, Mamoru Oshii. Sort of like uh, on the Bebop podcast, I was shouting out Shinichiro Watanabe because he's not much of a film director, so he doesn't get talked about a whole lot. Not, Not as much as a lot of the other like anime directors that are more well known. And I think Oshii is a film director. So he does get like a bit more of that recognition, but I don't think it's as much as some of the others because part of it is because a lot of his films are films that are tied to like bigger franchises, like the first two Pat Labor movies and the first two Rusei Yatsura films and stuff like that. And then a lot of his other stuff is like kind of obscure live action stuff which I don't even think a lot of those ever even made it to the States. He's not as big of a name as, say, Hayao Miyazaki or Mamoru Hosoda or Makoto Shinkai, but he's a very important director and he's a very talented director and he's made some great anime films, such as this one. Uh, I also kind of want to talk a bit about the franchise because I know for a lot of people it's kind of hard to jump into there's a lot. I'll just kind of start by talking briefly about the manga. The original manga was written by Masamune Shiro between 1989 and 1991, and it spawned two sequels, Ghost in the Shell 2, Man Machine Interface, and Ghost in the Shell 1.5, Human Error Processor. All of those have been uh, released recently uh, in the last couple of years in their proper right to left format by Kodansha, I believe. I'd recommend checking those out. There's also several different anime adaptations. And basically the, the best way I can simplify the anime stuff is there's basically there's three timelines. First timeline, you have the Oshi films, which uh, first there's the 1995 film. And then there's a sequel The sequel is not Ghost in the Shell 2.0. That movie is a weird Lucasification where they just added unnecessary CGI to a bunch of scenes. I wouldn't bother with it. The sequel film is called Ghost in the Shell 2 Innocence, which is a film that follows Bato. There's also the Standalone Complex series, which consists of... There was two seasons produced by Production IG and co-funded by Adult Swim, which makes it technically an Adult Swim original. And there's a funny story that I kind of want to talk about just briefly. I actually alluded to this in one of the WandaVision podcasts. We were talking about um, aspect ratios in television. And in the early 2000s, they they were formatting this for American television. And this was one of the first series 
that was made in 69 or it, it was not not even quite 69 it was a little bit wider than that and like uh mike lazo who is the uh founder of adult swim he, he was just like we we can't put this on the air like that we need to do a pan scan and uh jason demarco who was like adapting the series for television was like no the fuck we are not we are airing this in widescreen and like they got into such a big argument about this that they almost threw hands and like Mike Lazo just shut the fuck up about it and they aired it in widescreen. So sometimes you just have to stand up for what's right. So yeah, there was the two seasons of that. And then there was a movie solid state society, which was basically the finale for a while until just last year, Netflix put out a new season called Ghost in the Shell SAC underscore 2045, a CGI series. And so naturally, some people don't like it as much. Uh, I think it's fine. I don't think it's as good as some of the others, but I enjoy it. And then lastly, there's also an anime series called Ghost in the Shell Arise, which um, it's it's Okay. Uh, it's not my favorite, but I, I liked it as well. And basically there there was a five-part OVA, and then that got readapted into a series called Alternative Architecture, which was 10 episodes. And then there was a film simply titled Ghost in the Shell, The New Movie. And that's 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 that series. And then there's also been a couple other adaptations, including various video games, novels, and of course the well-known, potentially infamous uh, 2017 live-action film starring Scarlett Johansson. So yeah, there's there's a lot of media, but uh, there's also just like a lot of places you can start with it. So yeah, with that all being said, uh, let's kind of talk about our history with the film, but also kind of talk about our history with the franchise at large and any history we may have with uh, the director, Mamoroshi. Uh, Austin, start with you. Uh, franchise wise, I I don't really have any history. Director wise, I think I saw Angel's Egg once. That's about it. Most of this is about Ghost in the Shell, the 1995 movie for me. So uh, g- growing up in St. Louis, we'd hit up this grocery market chain with a funny name called Schnooks. And inside of Schnooks, uh, they had this magazine aisle that was the dread of my parents because they sold publications like Tips and Tricks and Game Informer. And I think it was in the back of one of those magazines that I saw my first ad for Ghost in the Shell back in the day. And it looked like something I wasn't supposed to be seeing because I was like eight or nine. (laughs) Throughout my life after that, I'd see ads for standalone complex on Toonami. I spent most of my life thinking that the movie came from the anime not vice versa. And it was just like a special long episode like you do sometimes. Uh, Then (laughs) one day around 27 or so when I was trying to do, you know, film studies stuffed in my spare time to keep my brain sharp, uh, I decided that I was going to get a copy of Ghost in the Shell from a friend so that I could watch it before the new movie came out. And the rest after that is history. Awesome. Ethan, tell tell us your... your background in Ghost in the Shell. Yeah, okay. So my my background in Ghost in the Shell, Ghost in the Shell was the um it was the first Oshi film and it was my introduction to also um I suppose in a roundabout way the works of uh 
the uh, mangaka, uh, Masamune Shiro. I remember re- uh, really enjoying it the first time I saw it. Um, but again, like I was probably in like the sixth grade, seventh grade. No, it would have been like sixth grade. I got a copy from my library and I uh, I watched it that way. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. I don't understand a word of it, but no, it's, it's really neat. It's very, very visually attractive. And I really enjoyed it. And then I, I sought out Innocence and that was basically the same thing, but more so. This is really, this is really interesting, but also I don't get it. Um, and I never really, um, as far as Ghost in the Shell goes like i would watch a little bit of standalone complex here and there um and i quite liked it um but i only watched a handful of episodes it never really grabbed my attention in the same way um i read the original manga um which i i love i think um it's it's completely different from the anime film like basically any anime adaptation of it uh, of ghost in the shell hues um closer to uh oshi's work whereas shiro's is um very anime-y in its look it's very light in its tone. Uh, it's very goofy, uh, which I love about it. Um, it's distinct. His artwork is gorgeous. Um, he, he came to prominence around that time where otaku culture uh, were, they were a bunch of gearheads, basically. They were a bunch of mecha guys um, coming off of, you know, Gundam and Votums and all that. Take us back. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, nowadays, you have the other, that Ghost in the Shell spinoff, Pandora and the Crimson Shell, which, oh boy, I've, I've never seen anything outside of promotional material and even that's like, no, thank you. I'm, I'm good. That looks, it looks kind of skeevy in a way that's apt for Masamune Shiro, who used to be this guy who made really great uh, science fiction concept manga, uh, like uh, Black Magic M66 um, and Dominion Tank Police are, are two of my favorites because um, I, I love the anime as well as the manga adaptations. Or not manga adaptations, the manga originals and the anime adaptations. Bleh. But now he just does weird porn. Um, good for him. He's living his best life. I don't want to read any of it because it's greasy and gross and... Eh, whatever. Good for him. <laughs> I'm glad he's having fun anyways. Yeah, no, and I really uh, fell in love with Shiro's work. Particularly, I um, there was a copy at, of my local library of Black Magic as well. His uh, his mm-hmm. debut manga that I would uh, get quite a bit, um, more than just once, and I would just reread it and just look at the pictures and just sort of study the images uh, in a way I hadn't really done with comics before, just because I love his designs in that, uh, particularly the main story, the first story, which was adapted into OVA. Uh, as for Oshi, um, I, I really love him. I think he's he's sort of uh, fallen off as a as a director in a lot of ways because I think he used to be one of the really big names, um, and rightfully so. Like in the early two thousands, when when anime was first coming over, in terms of people you would discuss, he's one of those. He's considered a very significant auteur per, uh, personality in animation literature, and for good reason. You know, he directed the first uh, OVA that was not pornography um, with Moonstation Dalos. It's it's cultural significance aside, it is still a significant first. The first big chunk of Urusei Yatsura and the first two films, he was the director on the series and the, those movies. Um, the second one, getting him fired because Rubiko Takahashi, the original author, did not like it um, and made her displeasure well known. And uh, Angel's Egg, uh, which is a, a great movie that I like a lot um, and I think is good and cool. And I cannot get into it because then that would just be an entire podcast. Angel's Egg is one we'll come back to. Uh, We'll bring back Tanner, who uh, will still have only watched the first 20 minutes. Yeah, he fell asleep several (laughs) times trying to watch it. I love that boy. God bless. Uh, Gosenzo-sama Banbanzai uh, is an OVA series he directed um, that is that is more significant to like animation history. It's not super well known in the U.S., but it's slowly gaining traction in like animation circles. I remember watching that when I was uh, younger and it being pretty, pretty significant. 
and his Petalbor films, Petalbor, the movie, the first one in particular, I really like. The second one's a bit too, uh, it's sort of a, a middle ground between Petalbor, the movie, the first one, um, and Ghost in the Shell almost. Um, but as a result, it's it's kind of the worst of both worlds, in my opinion. Then his live action stuff, uh, which is mostly bad. Um, it's like technically impressive for its day, but it, it dates pretty much instantly. His, his very early stuff is kind of neat, though. I like... Um, I do like Red Spectacles, um, despite the fact that it, it is kind of nonsense and hard to parse. Um, and those films, actually, they have had releases in the U.S., um, but they're they're old. They're old DVD releases for the most part mm-hmm. um, by, like, Image Entertainment. Basically, if something was released by Image, you know it was either in the early 2000s or very late 90s. That uh, sort of thing. And then, of course, you know, he went on to direct a few more anime, and then he kind of got sidetracked with... A, variety of projects. And now he's coming back to anime with, of all things, uh, something more akin to Ursae Yatsura with uh, Vlad Love, which is like a vampire girl uh, comedy yeah. series that he's doing with, um, we'll, we'll throw the name of the other director uh, off the screen because it escapes me right now. Um, but he was an assistant to uh, to Oshi on uh, Ursae Yatsura. And he also, uh, that assistant directed mm-hmm. uh, Ranma as well. Um, so a fine lineage and a weird thing for him to return to. But I'm kind of interested in seeing how that uh turns out. But yeah, no, um, Oshii is a, is a cool dude who uh, made, who stopped making good movies for a while, and I hope he starts doing it again. He's a person mm-hmm. of significance who I like. And I like this film, Ghost in the Shell. It's a cool movie. Uh, Masamune Shiro, also, please have a redemption arc. Make something cool again. I miss when you made <laughs> cool things. Yeah, no, back to you, Tim. All right. Awesome. Yeah, but both, both good, good takes. Uh, my start with Ghost in the Shell was um, it, it sort of goes back to around 2004 in like fourth grade um, I started a subscription to Shonen Jump which was largely to get the Yu-Gi-Oh cards that would occasionally come in the volumes but I would read some of the manga that were in there and I'd see some of the ads and around 2004 they started running ads for Ghost in the Shell 2 Innocence because that was just coming out that year it was just like this promotional image of like the poster with one of the like machine dolls heads and uh gabu bato's a basset hound and whenever i'd see that image i'd be like this this looks really neat and interesting I, i have no idea what it is but it looks cool and then i would be at people's houses and watching Adult Swim, and I would see Ghost in the Shell standalone complex on there. And so I would, I would catch like a couple episodes here and there and see stuff about like Laughing Man and whatever. And I, I would just think like this, this is a really interesting show. This is like, this is very different from like the anime I'd been familiar with, which is stuff along the lines of like uh, just kind of basic starter shonens like Yu-Gi-Oh! and Dragon Ball and whatever was on Kids WB or uh, the Fox box. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I was I thought that that was interesting. And then like at some point, uh, me and my brother watched both of those movies and it was just like something completely unlike anything I'd ever seen at that time. So I, I kind of consider the original Ghost in the Shell film to be like my gateway to seinen anime stuff. I think I watched that before uh, I had ever watched like Cowboy Bebop. Just like seeing that, I think maybe more interested in stuff like that. And so like when my friends were getting into uh, like Naruto and Inuyasha and stuff like that, I was more interested in 
uh, stuff like Ghost in the Shell and Bebop and uh, Blood Plus, which not not to say that Shonen stuff is lesser or anything. I mean, I'm 29 years old, and before I go to work, the last four weeks I've been rewatching the Duelist Kingdom season of Yu-Gi-Oh! And let me tell you, 20 years later, that shit still slaps. Shonen is not lesser. Don't attack me, my Hero Academia fans. Uh, I guess I'm just more personally interested in like seinen stuff and uh that was sort of the beginning of me getting into stuff like that so i watched the standalone complex stuff when i was able to get my hands on that and i really enjoyed that enjoyed solid state society Uh, i actually got solid state society signed by uh, mary elizabeth midlin which that was cool and i also got Innocence signed by Richard F. Carr. So I'm, I'm happy to have the leads of the Ghost in the Shell dub have their autographs on some of the films that they worked on. I, I don't know who I'm going to get to autograph the original film because the voice actress who played Motoko in that is long retired. So I don't think I'm ever going to run into her at uh, Walgreens or anything. Um, <laughs> and then the Arise series, I, I thought was fine. It didn't do a whole lot for me, but I, I enjoyed when I watched it. And uh, the live action movie, uh, I guess I'll just kind of give my piece on. Like, I, I think it's one of the more competent Hollywood attempts at anime but the problem is they were just like so focused on getting recreating these shots perfectly that it kind of like just lost the heart of what made it special versus something like Alita Battle Angel, where the creators were like big fans of the manga. And so like the story, like it it, it gets it. Like it, it's it feels better as an adaptation and it doesn't get like so bogged down into perfectly capturing the imagery that it forgets to like stay true to the heart of the story. I think that like Alita is one of the better adaptations. Surprisingly, I wasn't expecting it to be very good. Uh, yeah. So that that's, that's basically my history with uh, the ghost in the shell franchise and with Oshi. Uh, I, I love this film. This is, one of my favorite um, films, period. Like, I, I specifically remember um, at Webster, there was a film appreciation class, and the teacher on the first day of class hands us a sheet and asks us to write down our three favorite films, which is every film student's least favorite question, because they're immediately just like, ah, oh, fuck, what's a movie? I've never heard of it. I just decided to pick like a favorite anime film, a favorite horror film, and then just like a favorite, just kind of roundabout film. So I went with uh, Pulp Fiction, Ghost in the Shell, Evil Dead. Pulp Fiction's gone down a bit in the rankings just because it's not as personal to me, but it's still a great movie. So yeah, Ghost in the Shell, very important film to me. Innocence as well. Um, I really love Angel's Egg. And that's that's definitely when you need to watch more than once because it's it's very atmospheric and it's just like you really have to just kind of take it in you also have to kind of like read what it was he was trying to say with the movie or like like the analysis of it 
to get kind of a deeper appreciation for it, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, I think it just, it stands on its own and it's very good. But again, a podcast for another time. Uh, same with Innocence, honestly. I think we could do a whole cast on that at some point. Mm-hmm. Maybe. That might be too much. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I love those films. Love the Pat Labor movies. I love the Rosé Yatsura stuff that he directed. And I've seen a couple of the live action ones. I enjoyed Red Spectacles. Uh, which led into a film that he wrote, Jinro, The Wolf Brigade, which I uh, love that film. It's, it feels very much like an Oshi film, and it's a very dark film. I think it's really good. So, yeah, uh, Oshi stuff, particularly like late 80s, 90s Oshi stuff, very good. Go watch it. <laughs> There's a lot of Oshi stuff I still have not seen, but... Um, what I what I have seen of his work, I really enjoy. Yeah, I, I have read the Ghost in the Shell manga, like the the original, and then two and one point five. Uh, I've read those. I did enjoy them. I wanted to revisit them before the podcast, but I did not have time. But I, I do like them. So that about sums up history with the franchise. So let's move on to the next question. Which is uh, what? What do you what do you think about the film? And uh, if you had the chance to catch it in IMAX, uh, what would you think of the IMAX presentation? I did not get to see Ghost in the Shell in IMAX because I was chained to a computer editing the Moneyball podcast. But I did rewatch the movie last night in the highest quality that I could find it. Uh, for me, Ghost in the Shell is a huge cinematic achievement. Uh, as far as anime features, for the longest time, nothing I had seen could even touch Akira because I don't have as large of an anime survey as these two, so I'm going to talk in basic terms. Uh, if you account for budget, like convert the yen to dollars and then account for inflation, Ghost in the Shell's budget was $4.9 million. Uh, uh, Akira's budget would be $14.6 million today. Personal taste-wise, nine times out of ten, I'd still choose Ghost in the Shell. Uh, What always strikes me about the film is the opening credits, uh, Making a Cyborg by Kenji Kawaii, playing over the mix of traditional animation and computer graphics. Uh, As far as openers with the theme music, it's like up there for me with Reanimator, really electric stuff. Uh, What's most incredible about Ghost in the Shell is how it managed to depict the story about transhumanism and posthumanism in a way that hasn't aged to look silly. Like, it was made on Indigo 2 Silicon Graphics Workstations 26 years ago, but as a whole aesthetic package, it holds up way better than Lawnmower Man, or or even new stuff like Lucy and Transcendence. It, It sort of feels like they hit a sweet spot. Like, it's cerebral and dense, but pretty direct with you. Like, they watered down its complexity as little as I think they needed to in order to make it accessible. Like, I showed this to my husband and he was blown away. A ton of care went into this movie. Uh, Like, the key animation supervisor said that the layout drawings took two to three times longer than they usually took to draw. The art director employed a weird technique for the lighting. Uh, The whole crew went to Guam to study gun. Ghost in the Shell is sort of up there with Blade Runner. You know, it inspired the Matrix. It's essential sci-fi viewing. Like the, like the cyborgs with the human consciousness in the movie, it's, there's this like deceptively amazing thing hidden inside the sub 90 minute feature. And uh, yeah, back to you. Awesome. Uh, Ethan, what, yeah. what are your, what are your thoughts on the film? And uh, I know you, you did get to see this in IMAX, correct? Yes, you know, um, I did get to catch this one in IMAX. Um, my my thoughts on the film are um, it's it's very gorgeous. I love the um, 
it's it's very attractive. I like the integration of the digital effects throughout. Uh, it's it's usually fairly subtle um, in a lot of ways, or it's you know it's in that way where it's not mm-hmm. um, integrating directly with. Um, like it's not just like a CGI helicopter, a la <laughs> GoGo Thirteen, the professional, um, <laughs> or like it's very subtly handled, and it does a good job of sort of blurring that line between the uh, reality and technology in a way that that uh, really props up the themes of the film in a cool way. The whole the narrative is it it balances its um, more cerebral aspects in a really good way. Um, you know that sort of juggling, um, like you get an action scene, you get a you get a talky scene, you get a slow pastoral uh, view of a uh, cyberpunk sort of dilapidated cityscape. You you get everything you want and it's all paced out in uh, pretty much the perfect way. Uh, there's some, you know, a lot of the themes, if you're a fan of like the works of uh, Philip K. Dick in particular um, and uh, A Scanner mm. Darkly, there is that allusion to that, uh, that old line, you know, I mean, it obviously predates A Scanner Darkly, but um, through a looking glass darkly, the idea of losing oneself to technology and uh, building upon themes, uh, particularly in Pat Labor 2, or Pat Labor to God would be killed. Um, Pate Labor. <laughs> Pate, yeah. Peyton Laborning, my favorite football player. No, uh, Jesus. I think it's got a lot of neat ideas. Uh, it's all executed very well. It's gorgeous. I, I honestly like the new sort of more realistic designs that when compared to Shiro's. Like, I love them both for different reasons. And I think they, they function very well, particularly for the story that Oshi is uh, trying to tell using Shiro's world as a base. I kind of miss the Fuchikomas from the uh, original manga, or uh, they're called uh, mm. Tachikoma in uh, Standalone Complex. But they're like, I understand why they aren't there. Yeah, there's a lot of really neat transhumanist ideas going on in here. Uh, and they're all fairly well executed upon, even if I'm not the biggest. I, I prefer Oshi's sort of earlier work when he's he's working more, when he's not necessarily engaging with that that technical aspect. But that's more of my, my personal affection for uh, his his questioning of more like dreams uh, in a more direct sense, as opposed to integrating that into a uh, dialogue about technology. But again, that's really more personal preference than anything. And I think this is probably mm. his most effective execution of those ideas in terms of the ideas melding with an enjoyable, good film. Um, <laughs> and uh, regarding yeah. the IMAX presentation, I thought it was pretty good. Um, but I, I'm not going to lie. There are some parts of it where I'm like, this would look fine on like a CRT, like the digital effects stuff, I think in particular, where it would almost look good with the um, uh, almost be enhanced by the uh, the texture of viewing it on that particular device, that particular media. And and there, there are some scenes that definitely enhances like uh, Moto, uh, Makoto's uh, dive and obviously mm-hmm. the opening of the film and making of a cyborg. But there are some where it's not as noticeable. It's, this is going to sound mean, but it, it's not extremely enhanced. But just seeing on the big screen, period, is really cool. Yeah. Even if I don't, don't think IMAX in particular adds a whole, whole lot to it mm-hmm. myself. And, uh, and yeah, that's basically my thoughts. Back to you, Tim. Nice. Um, yeah. So I guess like I, like I was saying, this is one of my favorite films, period. I would say it's my favorite anime film. It was a huge, just like door opener for me. And so it still like holds a uh, very close place to my heart. It's such a gorgeous, visually striking film. It's it's one of those films where like it's very dialogue dense and it has very like complex plot threads. And yet even if you like just don't fully understand all of what's happening, it still like really entrances you. Like I think probably like the making of the cyborg uh segment 
is, of course, a classic moment. And I think the moment that really has always stood out in my head is that little vignette about a third of the way through the movie where Motoko is just like on the boat through the town and like Uta 2 is playing. That moment is just like this really quiet kind of in-between moment where you can just kind of soak it all in. And it's just such a great experience. I think it has a lot of really interesting things to say about technology and just like the the concern with like, as we continue to move forward with technology, it becomes more ingrained with our personalities. Because like we're at, this, at this point, the distant year of 2029, uh, uh, at this point, we're dealing with like uh, cybernetic enhancements and uh, full body prosthetics. So at a certain point, the lines of humanity and machinery are starting to get blurred. And that's kind of a scary thing because like we have like the puppet master is hacking these people and then their memories are gone. And like that's that's just like such a weird, like kind of scary thing that becomes more and more relevant as we move forward with like technology taking over every aspect of our lives. We have like Alexa's in our houses and Jeff Bezos knows what porn we're watching. Uh, it's just like it, every, everything, everything is becoming just like entwined with technology to this point. That's becoming like a little bit frightening. And I think that that's something that's like, it's still a very relevant message in the film. I also would put it just like a little bit above Akira. Like Akira is fantastic. I think that this one just hits a different spot for me. And like compared to the manga, I really enjoy this and I enjoy the manga kind of on a different level. It's kind of like what Ethan was saying with the Pat Labor stuff. It's like the manga is a lot more like kind of humorous and jokey where like this movie is much more serious, which is kind of like when you watch like the Pat Labor early days OVA and then contrast it with the movies that Oshi directed. So, so I do think that that it, it was an interesting way to adapt it. And the IMAX uh, screening it's actually the second time that I've seen this uh, in theaters. In 2017, they did a re-release uh, leading up to the live action film. So I, of course, had to go check it out on the big screen at that time. Uh, and that was actually my first movie that I went to see at the Tivoli Theater, which is it used to be a really cool theater in St. Louis. And then it got bought by somebody who that I guess wants to make it more of a family friendly place. So that's uh, unfortunate. Um, but that was that was a really fun memory for me is when I went to see it the first time and then. Going to see it this time, uh, I, I did really enjoy the IMAX presentation. I think particularly the score was enhanced by seeing it in IMAX. I, I think that that really helped with that. Um, visually, I think, yeah, it, it, it looks good. It looks very good. I don't know that it was necessarily enhanced by the IMAX, kind of like what Ethan was saying. Uh, but yeah, just, it, it was just a very good theatrical experience so yeah moving on another one of the big uh aspects of the film is the score which was composed by kenji Kawai. 
He's a very good uh, anime composer. Some of his noteworthy works that I, I'd like to throw out there. Um, uh, he composed Ranma One Half, he composed Pat Labor, Higurashi no Nakukoro Ni, and a personal favorite of mine, uh, the Devilman OVA from the 80s and 90s. And recently, so he also composed a film called uh, Machia, When the Promised Flower Blooms, which is a, re- a really good movie. Um, I, I don't think it's talked about a whole lot, but it's, it's really good. And he did a good score for it. Uh, but yeah, he's a very great composer. And uh, score for this is, I think, definitely worth talking about. So let's talk a bit about that. Uh, Austin. According to the sound director, Kazuhiro Wakabayashi, uh, this was recorded in MIT studio, which apparently was a big deal back in 95. Uh, you can see some people talking about the production of Ghost in the Shell, like, oh, we wanted to match how cool the visuals were. So we, w- we went, uh, we spared no expense recording the sound. This is the myriad of production notes where they went over and above with this thing. And weirdly enough, I'm not, I'm not very versed in like music theory or sound production. So I'm stealing from a YouTube comment that I think is really nice. Uh, <laughs> There's this guy um, on the MO1 Chant 1 Making of Cyborg uh, YouTube video. His name is Fruity Learloops, but he talks about how the composition of the song is very minimalistic besides the choir and how it doesn't have any complex harmonies. Uh, There's like a pad that appears halfway through and it mostly plays a root note and then sometimes it plays a dyad. The pad is like the solo thing about it that's even remotely futuristic about the production, yet... In spite of how acoustically driven the song is, ironically enough, with classical Japanese lyrics, it seems futuristic and ethereal, which is is odd. It's like a paradox. I I also think it's tremendously clever uh, that they sort of modeled it off of Bulgarian harmonies, like like a wedding song. And it's this weird style of wedding songs that basically most people wouldn't have known about that foreshadows the ending of the film. Kind of like that dude in John Carpenter's The Thing, that Norwegian guy who pops out and like spoils the twist. But nobody would have known Norwegian seeing that movie in the 80s. So it's, it's sneaky in a really clever way that I can respect. Back to you. Nice. Uh, Ethan, thoughts on the score? Yeah, um, I I generally think that it does have a futuristic quality, but um, even more than that, I almost appreciate the way it counterpoints a lot of ways the more futuristic action because there is, um, as much as, yeah, uh, the Bulgarian uh, influence is probably the big one, but I think just the fact that it it is so minimalist and it's all, you know, based around the chanting and that sort of thing, that it, uh, it Mm. it counterpoints so strongly the visuals in a way I find really compelling. Making of a Cyborg is easily the the track that stands out the most prominently in this film. Um, I I love Kenji Kawai's other work, particularly uh, his uh, score for Red Spectacles actually is very, very good, as are his ones for the uh, Pat Labor, the movie. I did it again. Pat Labor, the movie, (laughs) and Pat Labor too. Oh, as well as just other stuff, uh, he he's another one who actually got their their big start um, with a Takahashi adaptation, uh, doing the score for Meizani Koku. We've been talking about a lot of uh, Takahashi guys, uh, Takahashi boys here, but I think uh, Ghost in the Shell's score it stands out. But I, I think it's particularly um, th- those choral tracks that really stick with me. The the rest of it is is good ambience, well done in my opinion, but. I think, yeah, making of a cyborg and any of those sort of uh, when you have that long montage of uh, Makoto going through the uh, waterways, um, I think it's it's really really good, really impressive. 
but and, and yeah, that's that's basically a gist of it. I I don't have anything like super super well formed outside of I really like it and I like it as a counterpoint. Yeah, yeah. The, my my thoughts kind of go along with uh, both of you guys. Is um, I, I think it's I think it's great in that way that it has sort of a classical sound to it that uh, counterpoints sort of the futuristic aspect of the film. And, like, the chanting is actually in the, like, classical Japanese dialect, which uh, separates it from, like, a lot of what you might hear in other soundtracks and uh, makes it more of, like, an older sound, like a more ancient kind of sound. Um, And I think that's interesting. Something that I really enjoy about the soundtrack is that it has this, like, weird like inherently kind of 90s quality to it and i mean that in the best way possible like it it just sounds like something you would hear in a soundtrack made in the 90s and like maybe not something you'd hear now which i think makes it really kind of interesting and unique yeah you have sort of like this mix of that sort of more like traditional Japanese music as well as uh, a lot of like really good ambient music that just kind of sets this kind of dark mood and there's like some synth stuff but it doesn't it's do, it doesn't feel overbearing or anything so it, it's not just like um, just like this overbearing kind of techno kind of thing it's just like very like subtle uh, undertones of synth, uh, which I think really kind of helps set the mood as well. Yeah, you know the the, the score is uh, cool and good. Two thumbs up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's I mean that's about it. It's just uh, it's a very very good score that both complements the film and kind kind of like with Bebop. It's almost just like a character in the film it wouldn't be the same without it. And then also something I forgot to mention, uh, and this was something that I didn't realize was a change because I had only ever watched the dub before. Uh, the IMAX version was the first time I had watched the movie subbed. So in the dub, there is a different song used for the end credits. It is a song by uh, U2 and Brian Eno, uh, it was a song that they made for a concept album called Original Soundtracks 1 under the name Passengers. And that was, that was the song that I always knew as the end theme of Ghost in the Shell was uh, this song called One Minute Warning, which it's a really good song. It just kind of flowed well into the end of the movie. So that that's kind of how like I, I had no idea that that was a change. I really, I really enjoy... The soundtrack in both versions, because like in the Japanese version, you have Uta Three, which is uh, like just like the grand kind of climax, because you have like Uta One in the making of a cyborg sequence. You have Uta Two in the uh, boat sequence, and then Uta Three just kind of closes out the film. But I do also really enjoy One Minute Warning, and that that might be largely because that's the thing that that's the one that I've been more familiar with is just kind of the end of the movie. But I do just think it's a really good song as well. So, yeah, that about does it for our questions. Any departing thoughts? Austin? It's just 
absolutely weird that there is a there, there is a movie that went on to surpass Akira in my lifetime, at least as far as personal tastes go. I, I wish everybody would go out and see this. I wish it wasn't remembered by most people as a controversy about Scarlett Johansson. It's really like top anime films in my list. I was amazed at how well it holds up every time I go back to it. And surprisingly, I think if you introduce people to it, if they're used to seeing more complicated movies, they'll gel right in, even though it's a little bit much. This thing's eternal. This thing's going to be good forever. I really like Ghost in the Shell. Uh, <laughs> I wish I'd gotten to see it in IMAX. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm happy we got to talk about this film. Hell yeah. Glad, glad you are able to add that to your repertoire. Uh, Ethan, thought, final, final thoughts. Yeah, no, I had a lot of fun revisiting this one because um, it's been a hot minute uh, since I've I've seen it and getting to see it on the big screen again was really exciting. I I meant to mention earlier, uh, it was actually the first film I ever saw at the Tivoli, um, too, at a midnight screening nice. uh, in, I want to say, golly, uh, 2015. September 2015, the first on their their real late docket for that year, or not the first, but mm. uh, the first film I saw on their real late docket, which was very exciting and, and sort of started a love affair with with midnight shows. Watching it this time kind of coincided with me um, getting back into Shiro a little bit, uh, anyways, um, just because I'd, I'd rewatched uh, Dominion Tank Police recently, and and that's gosh, it's such a good time, and I've just been been going over his work, so it, it couldn't have come at a better time, I suppose. And I was uh, I was happy to uh, check it out again. I'm at probably going to rewatch Innocence here soon um, and reread the uh, the original manga mm. um, as well as, as play as the PS One game, possibly for for hashtag content for the hashtag Bomb Squad. Hey, yeah, I, I I wish that I'd uh, been able to get the PS One game when it wasn't like super expensive. I would always see it at Slackers, and I never bought it. And now, now it's so hard to find. But otherwise, um, yeah, no, I, it was just a really good time, and I was really glad to have this opportunity to revisit what is the product of a lot of creatives. I like a whole whole lot. Nice. Yeah, um, I, I was definitely glad to get to see this a second time in the theater. And to get to see it in IMAX, especially like I think the only other anime movie I've seen in IMAX was Dragon Ball Super Broly, uh, which that that was that was that I have mixed feelings on the movie, but that like IMAX presentation was great and the crowd was great, so it, it, it was definitely that definitely piqued my excitement going into like this in IMAX, and I, I think that it may have sort of introduce a new generation to Ghost in the Shell because, like, they were playing in the trailer, the, like, brief, like, 30-second trailer during, like, Shang-Chi. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so that, like, that like helped it reach sort of a bigger audience, which is funny to me because this is, like, one of those movies that came out during that time, during, like, the, the anime video store era where, like, there there would be that, that little back shelf of cartoon movies uh, the kids would find it and they'd be like, mommy, can I get this and not know what it was? Yeah. Uh, this, this, this was a thing that, uh, our, our good friend Webster teacher, Pete Turman talked about his experiences working at Blockbuster was, uh, like just mothers renting stuff like a cure for their children. Um, so, so we get to traumatize a whole new generation with Ghost in the Shell. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that I'm so glad that this was uh, that this got re-released and that more people are going to be able to check it out um, and that we were able to revisit it for the podcast. I was happy to be able to talk about 
one of my favorite films. Um, we're going to be able to talk about another one of my favorite films in a couple weeks, but more on that later. First, I want to thank you guys for tuning in. If you are listening on any of the audio platforms, go ahead and leave us a review so that it'll boost us in the algorithms. Uh, and if you are watching us on YouTube, go ahead and if you like this video, give us a like. And if you want to see more of our stuff, give us a subscribe. And if you want to hear about that stuff that we upload, uh, hit the bell icon. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, tune in next week for yet another of the uh, video store uh, anime titles. We will be kicking off Spooky Month with the one and only Wicked City. Oh. Uh, Ethan is excited to host that one. Uh, yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> All right. So that is going to do it for us for this podcast thank you all for tuning in and remember diving off a tall building while naked can be a mind-blowing experience see y'all next time